I don't know about you, but uh, one of the things that's uh, a source of fear, perhaps, for me is running into someone with whom I want to share my faith, but who has uh, none of the uh, religious or biblical background that I have. Uh, It's increasingly a problem, I think, in our culture as we become progressively uh, unchurched and more and more people grow up without any of the basic trappings of Christianity, hearing none of the Bible stories from the Old Testament. And it's difficult for me to know how to approach these people when I want to share my faith with them. And there is another concern that is continually on my mind, and that is how I can minister to those who are within the body. So I have both of a concern of how I can share the gospel with those who are on the outside, as well as a concern as to how I can encourage and minister to those who are on the inside. And I think if those are concerns of yours this morning, the passage that we want to look at will give us some help on both these issues. And this is in Acts chapter 14. I'd like to cover this whole chapter with you this morning. Now, as David uh, covered in the preceding two weeks, we saw Luke give us a record of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and their ministry team in the city of Pisidian Antioch. They had a very successful ministry there, but as was the general pattern in Paul's ministry at this point, uh, there was severe opposition raised to Paul's ministry by the Jewish populace there in Antioch, and they eventually were able to arouse enough uh, resistance to Paul and Barnabas that they were forced to leave Pisidian Antioch and move to the uh, east. And uh, Luke tells us, beginning in chapter 14, where they went, it came about that in Iconium they encountered the synagogue of the Jews together, or they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Iconium was a city about 80 miles to the east of Antioch. You had to go up through a little mountain pass and then entered onto this great uh, level plain about 200 miles in length. And Iconium was a city up on this very high level plain. And as uh, the normal pattern for Paul and Barnabas was, they first of all entered into a synagogue. They figured rightly that that was the place where they would be most likely to find those who were responsive to the truth, both among the Jews and among Gentiles who had been convinced of the reality of the Jewish faith and had come to worship God in the Jewish synagogue. So as was their custom, they began by sharing the gospel here in the synagogue. And they uh, found great success in their ministry here as they did in other places. A great multitude, Luke says, of both Jews and Greeks responded to the gospel. But the story had just begun in Antioch as Luke or in Iconium as Luke goes on to tell us in verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the mind of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. This word disbelieved in verse 2 literally means to be unpersuadable, to refuse to be persuaded by the truth of the gospel. There were some people then as now, uh, whom uh, nothing could convince. And these who refused to be persuaded aroused a storm of protest against Paul and Barnabas. And this, too, is a pattern that you will encounter repeatedly in Acts, that Paul will go into a synagogue, preach the gospel, uh, he will uh, find great success there, and then the Jews, aroused by uh, jealousy and envy because of the... uh, 
kind of response and the following they saw Paul develop, aroused by their jealousy, they would instigate a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and force them to leave town. This happens at least five times in the book of Acts, and the story is about to be repeated here again. But because they encountered this kind of responsiveness among the people, it says in verse 3, they continued to minister. Therefore, because of both the response in verse 1 and the resistance they encountered in verse 2, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So they continued to speak boldly the gospel of God there in the city of Iconium, and God was confirming this message by the use of miracles, by the use of healing miracles in particular, which uh, bore witness to the populace there at Iconium that these words were truly from God. But we find in verse 4 that these miracles were not enough. But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. I think there's an answer here, by the way, to the question of uh, why God doesn't do more miracles like this today. I think we're often tempted to think that if God would only do the same kind of obvious supernatural uh, physical miracles in our midst today as he did then, uh, certainly more people would respond to the gospel. But this account suggests to us that that is simply not true, that if God were to do the same miracles today as he did then, it would not increase the conversion ratio. Uh, because the issue is not uh, the amount of evidence, but the condition of the human heart. And this incident reveals that very same thing. I've been uh, intrigued somewhat by this, uh, the James Irwin's pursuit of uh, Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. Now, I hope he finds it up there. It will be a great confirmation to my faith. But I think we need to realize that it's, if he does find Noah's Ark, despite what that will uh, objectively confirm about the truth of the scriptures that will have very little impact on evangelism because many people, as uh, these Jews were, simply refused to be persuaded by the evidence. And this reminds us again that the issue in evangelism is always the condition of the human heart and never the amount of objective evidence. Now you will notice as well that the city was divided by the gospel. Luke makes that very clear that the city of Iconium was polarized by the presentation of the gospel in, in their midst. And this is always a mark of the presentation of the true gospel. It has this effect of dividing people, of polarizing people. It's, uh, it's impossible to respond to the, the gospel of Christ with neutrality. And I was reminded of that fact when uh, Billy Graham came to town in August. You found that uh, I found that most people I talked to were either very much uh, for Graham's coming to Boise or very much against it. And that's a mark that he is uh, teaching the true gospel because it has this kind of effect on people. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He said that my message will have this kind of impact on people. It will... It will uh, polarize people, separate those who are responsive to truth from those who are unresponsive. And Paul encountered that same dynamic here at work in Iconium. And the opposition escalated, we find, in verses 5 through 7 and forced Paul and Barnabas to flee town. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers, the rulers of the synagogue there in Iconium, to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra and Derby, 
and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So uh, not out of cowardice, but simply out of uh, common sense, when they realized that their lives were in danger, they left the city of Iconium and headed for the city of uh, Lystra. It's interesting, uh, there is a second century uh, document that has come down to us which uh, records, and I believe the tradition is fairly reliable, records an encounter that a resident of Iconium, this city that Paul and Barnabas uh, have to leave at this point, records an encounter that a resident of Iconium had with the Apostle Paul. Uh, And it's the only physical description that we have of the Apostle. And this is how that account reads. This is a story told by a man by the name of Onesiphorus of Iconium. It says he went outside the city of Iconium to meet Paul. And he saw Paul approaching the city of Iconium, a man small in size, with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed. Sounds like a cross so far between uh, Carl Malden and Dave Roper here. (laughs) But uh, a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged. David ensures me that the comparison stops here. Bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. That's the only description of what Paul uh, looked like that's come down to us. But at any rate, Paul and Barnabas have to leave and head for the city of Lystra. And you, uh, you see there in verse 6 that Luke indicates that they crossed into a different uh, political region, the cities of Lyconia. And we know now that Antioch was in a region called the region of Phrygia, and the cities of Lystra and Derbe were in a different region, the region of Lyconia. And this was important because once they crossed the border between these two regions, then they were protected from the authorities in the region of Phrygia. And it's interesting to me to read the works of a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey, a scholar of around the turn of the century, who was a great believer in the historical accuracy of Luke's account here in the book of Acts. And it was this little account, interestingly enough, that convinced him that Luke was a good historian because at the time he began his studies, historians were convinced that Luke had made a mistake. They were convinced that Lystra and Derby and Iconium were all in the same region in uh, the Roman governmental system, and they felt sure that Luke had made a mistake. But as uh, inscriptional evidence began to surface and more archaeological data was uncovered, Uh, Ramsey realized that Luke really was uh, right on the money, that at this time there was a border between Iconium and Lystra, and once he had crossed the uh, county line, then they were safe from uh, the authorities in the region of Iconium. Now, Lystra was a city about 25 miles away, and Luke goes on to tell us there in verses 8 through 10 the event which broke open the city of Lystra for the gospel. At Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. It's uh, the physical description of this man in verse 8 is rather striking to me. Luke just hammers home the fact of this man's condition. He says he was without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Makes it clear that this man was in, in bad condition. And yet Paul was able to heal him with a word. And there's a striking parallel here you will recognize between the account in Acts 3, where Peter heals a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, and this account here. 
And the point is that Luke is making is that the signs of a true apostle were just as present in Paul as they were in Peter. Now, naturally, this event, uh, probably taking place out on the public square there in the city of Lystra, had quite an impact on the populace. And Luke tells us what that impact was in verses 11 through 13. When the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So when these people saw this healing event take place, their immediate conclusion was that the gods, Zeus and Hermes, in human form had come to visit them. Now, Zeus was the supreme god of both the Romans and the Greeks. The Romans referred to him as Jupiter, but it was the same god. And Hermes, who was the son of Zeus, was the messenger of the gods. He was the god who brought the message of the gods to men. He was also known uh, by the Romans as Mercury. If you've done any study in biblical issues, you're familiar with the term hermeneutics, which is a big word for interpretation, and that word hermeneutics comes from this Greek god Hermes, the messenger of the gods. Interpreters are those who relay the message of the gods to men. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, why did they pick Zeus and Hermes to identify Paul and Barnabas with? Uh, It's curious to me that they identified uh, Barnabas with Zeus, the supreme god, and Paul with Hermes. I think part of the reason might be that it's a little tough to... uh, conceive of a uh, man with a large nose, a bald head, and bow legs as the supreme god of the uh, universe. But, uh, but Barnabas was probably more reserved and regal in his bearing, and Paul was the one who carried the brunt of the speaking, which was the role that Hermes had in the Greek pantheon, so they naturally made this kind of identification. Now, it's interesting to know something of the history of this region, that several hundred years before this, or so the a legend goes that was, was widely circulated in this area at this time, they believed that 300 years prior to this, Zeus and Hermes had paid a previous visit to this very region. And they had looked all over this region of Lystra and Derby and Iconium for someone to take them in. And there was only one old couple that would give them the hospitality they were looking for. And as a result, they wiped out the entire population of that region and richly rewarded this old couple. They put them in charge of this magnificent temple, and then when they died, they turned them into these two uh, great stately trees there in that area. And so evidently these people uh, didn't want to make the same mistake again, or maybe they all wanted to be turned into trees when they died, I don't know. But anyway, they uh, respond lavishly to the presence of Paul and Barnabas in this community and begin and are prepared to worship them as Zeus and Hermes. And they, Luke tells us that they begin to worship these men in the Lyconian language. This was a dialect that was unique to this area. And so Paul and Barnabas at first would not realize what was going on. These people probably spoke Greek as Paul and Barnabas did, but when they got excited, they would lapse back into the into their Lyconian dialect, much as uh, Italians who speak both uh, English and Italian tend to do when they get excited. They'll revert back into Italian. And these Lyconians were the same. So Paul and Barnabas carried out this healing there in the city square and evidently retired to their 
their lodge, their lodgings, excited about the kind of response that this had, uh, miracle had stirred and not realizing exactly what the people were saying. But evidently someone came to Paul and explained to them what was happening, that, uh, that sacrifices were about to be offered to them outside the city gates. And so when Paul and Barnabas hear of this, they immediately put a stop to it in verses 14 through 18. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. This is a very instructive account to us because... uh, Evidently, it was the native population there in Lyconia that responded in this way. There were three classes of people there in Lystra. There was the Roman aristocracy. This was a Roman colony at this point. So there was a substantial contingent of of, uh, Roman aristocrats, retired soldiers. And there was an upper class of educated Greeks. Timothy's father was probably a member of this upper class. And then there were the third class of simply the native Lyconians. And the fact that their response is in the Lyconian dialect indicates that this was a, a response among the uh, average garden variety citizen of the street there in, uh, in Lystra. And these were people who would be unchurched, would be unfamiliar with the traditional uh, biblical concepts that Paul could assume when he went into a synagogue. And you'll observe that his message here to these unchurched uh, Lystrans is different than the message that he gives in the synagogues. When he goes into a synagogue, his appeal is always to the Scripture. And he demonstrates from the Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. But you'll notice carefully here that he does not appeal to the Scripture when he is dealing with those that have have given no authority to the Scripture in their lives. And I think that's a helpful thing for us to realize, that in sharing the gospel with those who have no religious background and no biblical acquaintance, that uh, we, we should imitate Paul's example of not beginning by appealing to the authority of Scripture, because that's an authority at this point that they do not accept. So let's observe how Paul approaches these people. Now, the first thing you'll see that he tells them is he emphasizes that we are of the same nature as you. That is, he's just flatly denying their Uh, attribution to them of divine qualities. He says to them, we are just common, ordinary clay. We We share the same common humanity that you do. There is no difference between us and between you. I think this is an important thing to communicate to those around us, that they need to know that there is nothing special about us, that the answer to life does not reside in us. I think there's a real uh, tendency that we can fall into without really thinking about it to become somewhat uh, self-righteous or at least to appear this way to people around us. I think the Pharisees alienated themselves from the, 
the common man in, in Israel because they communicated to people that they weren't made out of common, ordinary dust, but they were made out of super dust. And we need to, uh, you know, and there's no such thing as super dust. We are just all made out of the same common clay of humanity. And it's helpful to communicate this to people. Remember a story that you may have heard before but illustrates this very well. It's an incident that took place in a church in Northern California. There was a young man that came into this church one morning, and he was rather unsure of himself and a little bit resistant to spiritual things and had kind of been dragged into this church meeting. And so he sat in the back of the auditorium and uh, was kind of observing what was going on. And the pastor that morning was reading from a passage in the opening part of the service, reading from a passage in 1 Corinthians 6. And he read this passage. I mean, I'll just read it to you. He says, Do you not know, he was reading this to the whole church congregation, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And on a sudden impulse, he looked out over the congregation and he said, I would like for all of you who are present this morning, for whom this is true, that you were once, you once fit in this category, but you have now been washed and been sanctified. I would like all of you to stand to your feet. Well, that's a rather large challenge, and there was a long period of silence, and no one moved, and and suddenly a, a little old woman in her late 70s or early 80s stood to her feet. And encouraged by her example, people all around her began popping up. And by the time everybody got through, three-quarters of the congregation were on their feet. And this young man came up to the pastor at the end of the service and said, You know, I really came in here uh, reluctant and resistant, but when I saw what happened, I said to myself, You know, these are my kind of people. (laughs) So I think this is... uh, This is one thing that we need to communicate to others, that we are of the same nature as they. The answer does not lie in us. Paul said we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why it always disturbs me, by the way, when I I see Christians who, uh, who are bragging constantly about their church, as if there was something magical or if the church that they went to had the answers to life. We need to be careful that we give, we realize that it's the Lord who has the answers to life and see that we keep that clear. Now, this is also a problem, by the way, that can creep into the body where we can, um, we can treat uh, members of the body as if they were made out of super dust. I think this is particularly true in our tendency within the body to elevate uh, pastors and, uh, and teachers and prominent uh, members of the, of the Christian body to this kind of a status and elevate them and put them on a pedestal. And this is a reminder that, that everyone in the body is of the same nature as everyone else. There's nobody that's, uh, that's uh, made of any finer clay than the rest. I always appreciate what uh, David Roper says on this subject. Anytime somebody tries to address him as reverend, he uh, reminds them that uh, the word reverend uh, originally meant full of awe or awful in the original sense. And he says, I just don't want to be known as the awful David Roper. And, <clears throat> 
I went to the uh, the Chamber of Commerce luncheon that Billy Graham spoke at when he was here, and he was giving us very flowery introduction, which talked about how he'd spoken before more people in the face of the earth than any other man alive, and so on, and been man of the year, and all these other kinds of things. And he got up, and you could see that he wanted to kind of diffuse that idol worship, and so he told a little story on himself about when he'd been in Philadelphia and was speaking at a convention there in a major hotel, and he got on an elevator with his party to go down to the convention floor, and they stopped at one floor, and this man got on the elevator, and uh, he uh, said, you know, somebody told me that Billy Graham is on this elevator, and one of Graham's aides says, "Uh, yes, and that's him right there. And he kind of looked Graham over up and down for about 15 seconds, and all he said was, my, what an anticlimax. <laughs> and, uh, and I appreciated Graham telling that story on himself, because he was telling us that he is of the same nature as we are. So that's the place we begin. We simply have the same nature as everyone else around us. The answers are not to be found in ourselves. Now, the second thing you'll observe that Paul does is he simply tells them the gospel in two simple steps. He says that uh, the gospel is to turn from vain things and turn to a living God. And that's the basic message that we have to communicate to those who are outside, to turn from vain things and to turn to a living God. Now, the word vain simply means empty or powerless or weak or useless or worthless. So we appeal to those around us to turn from worthless, empty, vain things to serve a living God. Paul, of course, was thinking primarily of their worship of Zeus and Hermes here. And it's easy for us to think that we are not idolaters in our culture because we do not have little carved idols in our homes. And yet all of us are just as guilty in different ways of idolatry as these pagan Lystrans are. I read a definition by a theologian uh, by the name of Paul Tillich once of faith, which I think is very helpful. He defined faith as the state of being ultimately concerned. Now, what he meant by that is that anything that you are ultimately concerned about, that is your God. Whatever you are ultimately concerned about, that is the idol that you worship. And that may be different things for different people. It may be for some uh, uh, a successful career. And this is the thing that they are ultimately concerned about, being a success in business. Or financial security, the thing that they are concerned about above all is is building financial security for themselves and their family. Perhaps it's fame, the thing they are ultimately concerned about is building a name for themselves. Uh, Or perhaps it's some kind of prestige, some kind of... uh, Uh, recognition in society that motivates them and consumes them. Perhaps it's the condition of their body. I find this is increasingly true, that the human body is becoming an object of of idol worship, and people are consumed with with, uh, getting their bodies into shape and uh, refining them and shaping them up and toning them. And often they can be ultimately concerned, more concerned about that than anything else. I think the fact that diet books are continually the number one bestseller in the country is an evidence of that kind of... uh, of idol worship. And Paul says these things are empty things. That is, they will never satisfy. They will never fulfill. And we need to challenge people with that, that the things that they are ultimately concerned about will not satisfy them, will not, uh, will not answer that hunger in their heart. I remember talking this summer to a uh, man on a retreat that I attended, 
and he was telling me about an experience that happened earlier in his life when he was younger. He had always felt that the one thing he wanted more than anything in life was a cabin of his own choosing that he would build in a spot of his own choosing up in the wilderness area in Idaho. And through a fortunate set of circumstances, he was able to pick just the plot of ground he wanted, and he was able to build that cabin himself in just the spot that he wanted. And he remembered very vividly sitting on the top of the roof of his cabin and nailing down the last few shingles to finish off that cabin. And he remembers being struck with the same sense of emptiness that he'd always had. And here he'd finally had the very thing that he had always wanted in life, and the emptiness remain. And that was one of the things that turned him to the Lord. So he realized he needed something far more than he, than he had at that point in life. And we need to challenge people with that, to turn from vain things to a living God, to challenge them to begin to depend now upon a living God, someone who can animate them and fill them and satisfy the deepest hunger of their human hearts. Now you'll notice too the basis on which Paul appeals to these people. As I mentioned, the basis on which he appeals to them is not the uh, scripture, but you'll notice he appeals to them first of all on the basis of nature. He says a God to turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So this is a helpful thing to do is to suggest to people that nature, creation, reveals that there is a God who created all of this. And the, uh, the human heart realizes this. Paul tells us this in Romans 1, that everyone knows this, no matter how sophisticated their arguments against this. Deep in their heart, under all those layers of defense, they know that there is a God who is revealed in creation. And we need to remind people of that fact. Uh, this is one helpful thing I've found in dealing with... Uh, uh, friends of mine who are considering Christian faith and who seem to have a response to, uh, uh, to spiritual things is to give them books which deal with this subject. I've got a friend of mine that I have given a book by C.S. Lewis, and he argues very persuasively along the same line. I've given him also a book on the uh, evolution creation subject, particularly evaluating the fossil evidence. And this is a book which argues persuasively, and I think powerfully from scientific evidence, that there is a God who created all these things. So that's the first basis of our appeal, that nature reveals that there is a God who exists and who created all things. The second thing Paul appeals to is history. He says, in the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He says that God has allowed men the freedom of choice, that he has given to man a free will. And this is the biblical explanation for why there is evil in the world that God in his wisdom has given men the freedom to choose him or to reject him, to choose evil or to choose good. And this is why things have done terribly wrong in humanity. And you often find that, uh, that non-Christians are troubled by this. They, uh, they feel that uh, it troubles them that God has not, uh, has not stopped the spread of evil in the world. He hasn't put a stop to it. He hasn't wiped it out. And yet we see here clearly that God, the reason that evil exists in the form it is, is that God in his grace has given men the freedom to choose him or reject him. And the fact that he has not judged men for their sin is a sign not of his weakness, but of his patience. God could, if he chose, wipe sin off the face of the earth. And if you remember, he did that once. I think that's what's very instructive about the story of Noah back in Genesis chapter 6. 
that God did try that radical step of wiping evil off the face of the earth and preserving one righteous man and his family. Did that solve the problem of evil? Well, obviously not. It didn't work. So God has chosen to allow men to go their own way in order to give them time to repent. It's an expression of his patience and not of his weakness. And the third thing that Paul appeals to here is their own personal experience. He says, if you look at your own personal experience, you will realize that somebody is taking care of you. That's why he mentions in verse 17 the witness that God gave them of rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Lystra was in a very fertile plain, well-watered, and this would be very meaningful to these people. And this is something else we can remind the non-Christians of, is that the prosperity that they have, they owe to God. They are gifts from Him. I don't know if you've ever wondered why it seems that certain uh, non-Christians get all the breaks, and they always seem to be the ones that drive the uh, expensive cars and live in the big homes. Well, why is that? Well, that's because God loves them. He gives non-Christians, as well as Christians, fruitful seasons and rains from heaven. It's because he loves them, he bestows upon them his gifts in order to awaken in them a sense of gratitude. So that's the basis of our appeal. First of all, to creation, to nature, that reveals a God who exists, a living God, to the history of, the, of humanity, which reveals that God has given man a free will, he will not coerce faith, And third, to their own personal experience that somebody has been taking care of them, that someone has been responsible to see that they're fed and clothed and protected. So with this kind of a message, Paul was able to restrain the crowds from sacrificing to them, but just barely. And yet uh, Luke goes on to tell us that their troubles were not over. It says, Jews came from Antioch, in verse 19, and Iconium, And having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Very likely, Timothy was in this crowd of disciples that gathered around and was quite impressed by this amazing resuscitation on Paul's part. And in his courage, he went right back into the city, and then the next day they left for the city of Derbe, And let me just read the rest of this uh, paragraph and make one or two quick comments. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia, and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time there with the disciples. So this concludes their first missionary journey. And I just want to highlight a couple of quick things in verses 22 and 23, which suggest to us, I think, the basic nature of our ministry to those who are within the body. Paul says that they went around, or Luke says they went around strengthening the souls of the disciples. That's our basic challenge, to strengthen the souls of fellow disciples. How do we do that? First of all, by encouraging them to continue in the faith. That is, encouraging and challenging Christians to continue trusting God to continue placing their faith and dependence upon Him, even when 
even when things seem to be going entirely in the wrong direction. To encourage them not to give up, but to keep trusting God to deliver them and to save them. Secondly, they kept saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We secondly remind Christians of the place that tribulation and difficulty plays in the Christian life. This is God's basic tool to bring us to maturity. And we need to help each other realize this vital role that tribulation plays in getting us to the place that God wants us. I read this week that uh, a quote which captures this very well, that, that Jesus came not to make life easy, but to make men great. And tribulations is what he uses to do that. And then thirdly, to commend them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas were going to have to leave. They would not be with these believers. But they realized that they could commend them, they could hand them over, they could entrust them to the Lord in whom they had believed, and they would be in good hands. And this is the third thing we need to do, is to realize that the ultimate security and development of Christians around us is a matter of the Lord's work in their life, not of ours. And if they are geographically separated from us, they are not out of control because we can commend them to the Lord in whom they have believed. So as we go this week, let's carry out this kind of ministry to one another. Let's encourage each other to continue depending upon God and His grace. Let's uh, help each other to understand the place of trials and tribulations and developing us to maturity. And uh, let's realize that God is ultimately the one that's responsible for the growth of Christians. It's not up to our efforts and activities. Let's uh, stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the helpful light that this passage sheds on how we uh, can relate comfortably to those who are outside the realm of religion and share the gospel with them in ways that will begin to draw them to yourself. We thank you, too, for the light this sheds on our uh, responsibilities toward each other. We pray as we go this week that you will make us sensitive to those around us who do not yet believe in the gospel but yet have a hunger for spiritual things. Give us the grace to present the gospel to them uh, clearly in following Paul's pattern. We pray, too, that in our relationships with Christians this week, we could have the same ministry of encouraging them to continue to depend on you in times of trial and in times of difficulty. We thank you that you go with us to accomplish this task in us and through us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.